Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman and part of his seven-week presentation, Matthew and Luke on Jesus, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is part two of week four, titled Parables, recorded in March 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Following that parable, you got another one. This is a parable, the so-called parable of the talents. Uh, again, kind of nice double meaning in English. Talent is, some, is a skill that we possess, but talent is also this, you know, monetary uh, weight. So again, it's a, a very uh, wealthy investor who uh, doles out various, in, um, various uh, bullion, basically, for his servants to invest. Uh, and some of them invest. They, they give him a return, and he rewards them. And one of them said, well, I knew that you're a harsh master, so I hid your talent and didn't do anything with it. And he says, well, since you didn't do anything with it, guess where you're going? Out there, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, but the point of the parable, of course, is it's not just vigilance about when is it going to happen, but what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Use our talents. Right? Use the abilities that God has given us to make God visible through our deeds. Read the Sermon on the Mount. It all fits together nicely. Now, there are a couple other parables. So those are the parables that are linked by Matthew to his discourses. There are a few others that, are bear, that bear mentioning that are, uh, again, independent of those, but which uh, capture Matthew's ambiance very nicely and that reinforce these themes. Um, I'll take the last one first. It's a parable of a wedding banquet. Now, Luke has a lot of these. He has a lot of parables and scenes of people eating together. And the banquet uh, from the prophet Isaiah is one of the images of God's uh, sovereignty, God's kingdom fully implemented in the world that he, he invites all to a banquet. So there's sort of an Old Testament background to this image. But the wedding banquet, uh, in all the versions of this, uh, a person wants to um, have a, a banquet, a celebration for his son's wedding. So he invites uh, all the important people and the important people don't accept the invitation. So he gets angry and he goes ahead and out of spite for the refusers, he goes to the highways and byways and collects whoever will come. So they all come and the wedding hall is finally full. And that's where Luke's version of this parable ends. Matthew adds another little interesting tidbit uh, is when there is uh, the king's wandering through greeting all the guests and then he sees one of them isn't wearing the right clothing. He's not wearing wedding robes. And so he said, how did you get in here? Guess where you're going? outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ah! You know, so, and uh, it's, it's kind of a strange punchline to the parable, but uh, the punchline that Jesus gives is, many are called, but few are chosen. Whatever that means, I mean, and, and there are, there's a number of ambiguities in these parables that would need to be actualized in terms of an individual person's understanding and experience, but clearly the basic structure of the parable, the dynamic is, God calls, but we still have to do something. It's not enough to call God or Jesus Lord, Lord. You have to respond by making God visible in the world. If you don't, then you're not wearing the right clothing, right? 
into the, out, out, out into the outer darkness or the fire furnace or whatever it might be. But the point of all these parables, and this is so important that we, that we catch this, at least in Matthew's reading of them, is that it doesn't portray God as an arbitrary tyrant. You know, we often have these uh, you know, images of God as this mean sort of dictator who we have to placate. Well, God is indeed all-powerful, but uh, that's not the way God exercises power in these parables. Uh, he responds the way he does precisely on the basis of the core principle of the sermon. Be perfect. Be like me, says God. In that case, it's perfect, but be like me. That's the basic principle. If you're not like me, you can't be part of me. And that's a choice that we make. Right? That's a choice we make. And so the parables of judgment aren't there to scare us. Well, I suppose they would be there to, you know, whip us into shape. But the point is that they're there to show what our responsibility is, right? which is the same responsibility Jesus spells out in the Sermon of the Mount. So there's that. Um, there's also the famous parable of the laborers in the vineyard, right? So here again, you have an agricultural scenario, an owner of a vineyard. It's harvest time, he needs to harvest all the crop, but he doesn't have enough laborers, so he goes downtown with his pickup truck and he picks up the migrant laborers, right? Uh, we would call them day laborers in ancient Israel. Uh, this is a very uh, ordinary occurrence in an agrarian society, especially when there's hardship as people lose their land, and so the only way they can live is by hiring themselves out on a daily basis to work for other people. Um, so these are the people, these vulnerable types that are brought in to work, he puts them all to work. He creates jobs. He builds the economy, you know, like the, our politicians say. Um, but he takes them in at different points in the harvesting process. So some of them work longer hours than others, but he pays them all the same. And this then causes those who have worked all day to be envious and resentful of those who have worked only an hour and have still gotten the same reward. He says, are you envious because of my generosity? Um, now, the point of the, the explicit point of this parable that Jesus lays out is it's part of that famous expression, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's this sort of reversal of status expectations. But the specific meaning, uh, there's a deeper meaning to it. Uh, if the harvest, as in the other parables, is the end of the age and the consummation of the kingdom, well, people should be grateful to be working for this. The reward isn't just a monetary reward. It's the reward of belonging to the kingdom, to be being part of the process of bringing this about. It's the reward of being among those who are blessed in the Beatitudes. So just because other people enter in at later times, uh, if you're of the mentality, well, I should be rewarded more, that shows that you're not actually seeking the kingdom for the right motives. You're seeking the kingdom because you want it to succeed not so that you can be rewarded. You simply want to be among the blessed. And so the parable is, again, it's a way of, of correcting a possible misconstrual of the whole project of what the kingdom is and how people are to respond to this. We're not in it for our own, for our own selves individually. We're in it for the kingdom. Right? We're participating in God's project, and that's why we have to make God visible in what we do. So that, in a nutshell, is what Matthew, how Matthew uses these parables. And it's repetitive. 
it's very repetitive. It's a, it's a one-issue type of deal, right? Now, what about Luke? What about Luke's uh, unique parables? There are about ten of them in Luke, depending on how you count. Ten unique parables that are not in Matthew and that are not in Mark. There are more parables in Luke than any other gospel. Um, and also, unlike Matthew, and this is sort of part of the function of my going through this whole issue of how Matthew organizes Jesus' teachings into five parts, Luke doesn't do that. For Luke, there's just one <laughs> big collection of teachings. And Luke hangs all of these teachings on the journey narrative, Jesus' journey to, from Galilee to Jerusalem. Again, part of Mark's basic plot, which Luke elaborates upon, Mark's journey story takes three chapters. And that's where, where almost all Mark's um, quoted teachings of Jesus can be found. So maybe Luke got the idea from Mark. Let's put all the teachings there. But, uh, but Luke really goes overboard with this. Um, ten chapters worth. It takes Jesus ten chapters to get from Galilee to Jerusalem. And if you ever try to read it from, from cover to cover, that is from chapter 10 to chapter 19, um, I would urge you to take some breaks because it's, it becomes incredibly difficult to remember where we are on the journey. Basically, we have a little line that says, and Jesus kept moving along, and then we have a whole chapter for, full of teachings. Some of them are parables, some of them are not. So this is where Jesus puts every, or where, where, Mark, where Luke puts everything. But uh, the interesting thing about this collection is that, and we have to remember that when we talk about chapters and verses, these are not part of the sacred text. Chapters and verses are part of, they're an, a convenience of medieval monks uh, in order to, to, to make the scripture usable in a convenient way uh, for daily prayers and daily worship in a you know, uh, from dawn to dusk sort of setting, which is the monastery, it's convenient to be able to, to cite chapters and verses. So you create these artificial divisions. But even, even the chapters seek to at least uh, divide the text according to basic units that make, that, that, that make sense, units of, of, of story or units of teaching. So out of that, we can say, if you look at that 10-chapter-long journey story, Almost every one of those chapters has at least one unique parable of Luke. So Luke literally is punctuating. If there's any structure at all, and I'm not convinced there is to this massive uh, bin of Jesus' teachings, this is sort of like the cloud, right? The cloud up there where we send all our files to. This is Luke's cloud. But the organizing device seems to be these parables that at least punctuate and remind us of what the main theme is. And the main thing in Luke is mercy, the merciful God. So guess what the unique parables of Luke are about? They're mostly about mercy. In fact, they're all about mercy in some respect, but they're also about, uh, again, Jesus' uh, prophetic message. Good news to the poor, for example. There are parables about good news to the poor in here. But let's just take a couple of them. It starts out, the first one is one we all know. It's the Good Samaritan, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. The Good Samaritan. Well, remember, how did, this, how, did this, how did the parable begin? It began with the lawyer who was testing Jesus. Um, what do I need to do to, or what are the greatest commandments? Some, some question to that effect. Jesus quotes the, uh, the Shema from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor after that. And um, 
then the, the lawyer says, but who is my neighbor? You know, let's interpret now, Lord. Who is my neighbor? Um, which basically says, is, is a way of saying, who do I not have to be nice to? So the, the, impl- the implication of the question is, my neighbors are those who are a circle of people that, are, that, that is not coterminous with all humanity. It's only a few people. So Jesus, of course, shows him a parable that explodes that, that um, comfort, that, that we have a comfort zone, which we call neighborhoods. The neighborhood is everybody. Um, he gives that through this shocking story of how an enemy of the Jews helps out the Jews or helps out a Jew, right? There's a Jew who gets robbed on the road and the people who, who, who you would expect to show mercy to him, the priest, the Levite, don't do so. And so the only person left over, you would expect it would be another Israelite at least, but no, it's a Samaritan. I say another Jew. Samaritans are Israelites. So another Jew would come do this, but instead the third person to come by is a Samaritan. Uh, now, the reason why Samaritans don't like Jews is because the Jews destroyed the Samaritans' temple. Uh, and they tried to massacre them uh, a couple hundred years before Jesus. So they had reasons. Um, but in any case, that's a whole different story. Uh, the, um, the Jewish New Testament scholar, Amy J. Levine, has compared this parable, if you wanted to put it in a modern context, an Israeli settler uh, is, is moving uh, along the separation wall in Israel and is uh, beset by robbers, and a member of Hamas comes and rescues him. That's sort of the, the, the shock value of this. That's the neighbor. It's the people who you don't expect, the people who are just as much uh, worthy of mercy as anyone else. And so the question is, to whom did he, to whom, whom was the one who showed mercy to this man? It was the one uh, who showed compassion on him, said the, uh, the, the lawyer. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. So there is the point of the parable, is to imitate, right, to imitate the merciful nature of God. Read the, read the, uh, the, the Sermon on the Plain. So beginning with that, as the, as the opening volley, it moves through several other parables. Um, at the very center is the parable of the prodigal son, which, guess what, is about a father's mercy for a son who doesn't deserve his mercy. Uh, there's the story of an unfruitful fig tree uh, that, the mass, that the owner of the, of the orchard wants to cut down, not because the owner is cruel, but because the unfruitful fig tree is robbing the fruitful fig trees, the rest of the orchard, of the nutrients. So he says, get rid of it to save the orchard. No, says the gardener, give it another year. We'll see. So the owner of the vineyard shows patience, shows mercy in that very short parable. Uh, there's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? The, uh, who, the Pharisee, they both go to the temple to pray. The Pharisee says, thank God I'm a righteous person. Uh, thank God I'm not like that guy. And the uh, what does the, the tax collector pray for? He says, be merciful to me. So obviously he is asking for mercy. He's recognizing in God, the merciful God, not the God that if I'm not righteous, I'm going to be out there uh, with the people weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, so you might even see a kind of dialectic between Matthew's judgment God and Luke's merciful God, not that they're really different, but they're expressed differently in these parables. Uh, so we have the parables of mercy. We also have um, the parables of wealth and poverty and good news for the poor but not the rich. There is the story of the rich fool, for example, in chapter 12, right, who hoards his resources rather than giving them away, uh, not realizing, of course, that he is going to die tonight and the hoarding 
serves uh, no benefit for himself, and in fact, uh, not, not just because he can't take it with him, but because the hoarding does not make God's mercy visible to the world. So he's in trouble. Um, then, of course, there's the rich man and Lazarus. This is the most elaborate parable that has to do with wealth and poverty and mercy, right? La- uh, the rich man didn't show Lazarus mercy during lifetime, and as a consequence, Lazarus is not able to show the rich man mercy in the underworld where they are, uh, they are in different conditions, right? The rich man is in the, the fiery part of the underworld, and Lazarus is, Lazarus is hanging out with Father Abraham, enjoying a, uh, I don't know, whatever they drink there, I don't know. But, uh, you know, the, the, um, the, the poor rich guy, who is now poor, is saying, please, you know, give me at least a little water. And Abraham doesn't say, no, go away. He says, he says we can't. We can't. You know, you did not manifest mercy in, in the world. Therefore, you've created this chasm between us. We can't bridge the chasm and neither can you anymore. You've done this to yourself, right? He says, well, send someone back to, to, to earth or up to earth to warn, warn my brothers. He says, they already have the Torah and the prophets, right? If they listen to the message of the prophets, then they will be merciful. Um, so again, the theme is not an arbitrary uh, dictator God, but one uh, who requires us to respond, uh, requires us to do what he has created us for. There are a few more parables we could talk about, but I'm going to talk about one very peculiar one. This is perhaps the most difficult of all Jesus' parables, and it's the last one, the last unique parable in Luke's gospel. It's at the end of the journey narrative, right when they're about to get to Jerusalem. It is, in fact, the parable of the talents from Matthew's gospel, which is, again, the, the investor who gives his, uh, his stockbrokers you know, money to invest, and some of them do and some of them don't. It's that story except there is interference from another story, um, or if you will, there's, there's another story overlaid on this one. So it becomes really two, two parables at once. And that's what makes it confusing. You know, that by itself, the parable of the need to, in, to invest, to do something with the talents God has given us, with the responsibility God has given us to make him visible in the world, we understand that part. But here's the interference story. In... Luke's take, in Luke's development of this parable, this basic idea, he has a man who is the, the rich guy who owns all this capital. He says he went away to a foreign land to uh, obtain a kingdom. And his, and his fellow countrymen didn't want him to become king. And then we go into the story of, well, when he left, he gave this money to his, uh, to his servants to invest, and some did and some didn't. When he comes back, he rewards and punishes the servants. But then he says at the end, and by the way, those people who didn't want me to be king, slaughter them. Okay, well, whatever that is, it's not a parable of mercy. <laughs> you can't cut it as a parable of mercy. Um, but but, but what, what is this? How does this fit into the story? Um, why this king who goes off and gets a, who, who everyone doesn't want to be king and gets the kingship anyway somehow from some other country and then purges his own country of, of his former opponents. Um, I've heard people suggest that this is a, a, a metaphor of, of uh, Jesus as king, in which Jesus goes to a foreign country, i.e. heaven, to get a kingship, 
which actually happens in Luke's gospel. He goes up to heaven to become Messiah uh, and then comes back and uh, destroys all those who opposed him. Well, you know, that's possible, I suppose, but does it really mirror <laughs> the, uh, the image of mercy, the theme of mercy? It doesn't seem to do that. Now, the one clue we have, perhaps, is right before the parable, this is right when they're getting to Jerusalem, and Jesus says, or rather Luke says, that everyone was expecting the kingdom to arrive immediately, and therefore Jesus told them this parable. Now, that still is terribly opaque, but if we can put that, that, that's, that, narrative, that narratorial comment that, that everyone is expecting the kingdom to come immediately, if we put that in the context of the whole of Luke's gospel, maybe at least we can get into the right ballpark for somehow fitting this parable into the pattern. We know, of course, from Luke's birth and nativity stories, uh, nativity and infancy stories, that people were expecting the kingdom to come immediately. They were all waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem from its enemies, i.e. the Romans. Uh, They prayed that God would deliver them from all who hated them. And Jesus is the one who is supposed to do this. He's supposed to sit on the throne of his father David in Israel. When he gets to Jerusalem, right after this parable, he weeps for Jerusalem. Actually, I think it's even before this when he weeps. He weeps for Jerusalem because it doesn't know the things that make for peace. So the contrast is between peace and war. When he gets there, he talks about how armies will encircle you and besiege you and destroy you and enslave your people. So he's not talking about some spiritual thing. This is, this is real, brutal history we're talking about. And of course, a generation later, the Romans will come and do just that. So I would suggest that there's a Roman context for this parable. And there's also another way of reading the, uh, the, the, the investor who goes to get a kingdom from, from outside. In other words, that this may not be a, a symbol or a representation of the kingdom of God. It may be a representation of that which God is replacing. Because if any Jew, let's assume that Jesus actually spoke this parable just like Luke said he did. Well, any Jew living in the time of Jesus who heard a story about a person going away to become king with no one wanting him to and coming back and slaughtering his opponents, they would know exactly what he was talking. He was talking about Herod the Great's son. Not Herod Antipas, the one in Galilee, although he tried to become king of everything too, but rather Archelaus. Archelaus, we hear about him in Matthew's birth story. He is the son of Herod the Great, who eventually established himself as ruler of Judea near the time of Jesus' birth. And if we read the history about him, when King Herod died, when the first Herod died, Archelaus went to Rome to convince the emperor to make him king of the Jews, like his father was, because no one else at home wanted him to become king. And he eventually, he didn't get the title king, but he got sort of second best, and he got control of Judea, at least. And when he came home, he made a point of killing off all of those who who disliked him. So this is not an image of the kingdom of God. This is an image of the way in which the violent in power behave when they are threatened. So is Jesus warning them about sort of uh, uh, trying, to, uh, trying to announce the kingdom in such a way that it will lead to this kind of violent reaction against them? He certainly weeps for Jerusalem because it's going to do just that. 
So I, I, I have to confess, I don't have a clear answer for this parable, but it is very curious um, how it links to the theme of mercy. Uh, part of it has to do with, again, we, we are given the mercy to do with our skills what we have. But this other thing could perhaps relate back to that theme of Luke's gospel, which is how the kingdom of God relates to Rome and its clients in an oppositional way, perhaps. But I think I'm going to stop there so we can have some time to uh, do um, discussion here. So here are the parables. What do we make of them? These are for our formation as disciples. How do we, uh, what do we hear when we hear the parables, some of these parables? Most of these are probably familiar with us. So the the comment was that um, in in all these parables, we can see how the uh, that they sort of dis- that they, they discourage us from judging others, but rather turning the magnifying glass on ourselves to examine ourselves and by realizing our own flaws and realizing our need for mercy, it trains us to be merciful to others, to be forgiving and understanding of others. Sure, I mean, that's, that's just the, uh, you know, in parable form, that is, uh, you know, don't try to take the, the, the thing out of your brother's eye, you know, take the beam that's stuck, sticking out of your own eye, that sort of message that you get in the sermons. Yes, definitely. It's, I mean, it's very much intent on, on, on implicating ourselves in the whole process. How are we implicated by this parable? Where do we fall in this parable? Are we really the good, the good earth on which the seed falls, or do we allow other things to step in and choke the word, or uh, do we not, are we not grounded enough like the rocky ground? Uh, do we allow Satan to take the word away when people speak it who we don't think should be speaking it? Um, you know, there's, there's all manner of application to our own lives with these things. I think that's probably a good place to stop, and um, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio presents.